when I think about acquisition channels, it's really about how do we get our customers to what they need in the most simplified way. We have these industry leading assets. We have the number one financial website. We have the number one mobile app. We have hundreds of millions of logins, but how are we taking advantage of that? How do we use data? Have the customer communicate with us. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. Hello! We are happy to have our next guest, Aaron McFarlane. Aaron is the Managing Director of Channel Marketing Strategy and Personalization at J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in the U.S., She is responsible for the optimization of Chase's industry-leading digital assets and marketing channel that deliver communication to more than 70 million customers. She has spent the last 20 years creating customer-first marketing strategies for national and global brands, spanning healthcare, luxury, and hospitality, and finance. Erin, so excited to have you here to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. First, let's start with a bit of background. Tell us a bit about your role today at Chase, what it entails, how does your day-to-day look like? Let's start with that. Yeah, so as part of the performance marketing team, it's a really driven, creative, innovative team that is at the heartbeat of transformation at the firm. And so we're responsible for our own digital assets. So think about like our own media across Chase.com and our Chase mobile app. Those alone get a billion views every single month. So how are we thinking about both the new capabilities, but then also the optimization strategies to keep those really large engines running? And they support acquisition, engagement, activation, servicing, as well as we oversee email for our lines of business. We also have a group that thinks about cross-product, cross-channel customer acquisition So we have these really amazing uh, customer acquisition powerhouses in each line of business. But what does that sometimes show up to a customer is siloed communications. And so instead of our remit is really looking across and saying, how do those things come together when there's more than one product? And what does that look like for the customer? So we're really driving the the customer lens and the data-driven lens on that. And how do we optimize for both the, the customer and the shareholder? And you talk about customer acquisition. I'm curious, what are you know some main channels that you think about acquiring customers and how important is mobile part of that? It's interesting because we serve over half of the households in the US. Yeah. So having the brand equity of Chase, they know who we are. And the way in which we navigated through the recent pandemic, our recent commitments to our path forward initiatives, to creating financial equity, for all Americans, with their $30 billion commitment there. When you think about the brand itself, it has a lot of brand equity. Our customers and prospects know us. So we don't have to, we don't do the hard part of brand awareness. But when I think about acquisition channels, it's really about how do we get our customers to what they need in the most simplified way, including these industry leading assets. We have the number one financial website. We have the number one mobile app. We have hundreds of millions of logins, but how are we taking advantage of that to have the customer communicate with us? They really do that. When you think some people are like, oh, I don't want to be in data all day. I challenge your thinking on that. I think it's a customer's only way to communicate to us. It tells us if we're on the right track. It tells us if we miss the mark. When we're doing optimization, 
the customer data is our intel. It's their way of, of telling us if we've done a good job. And we have a whole arm that thinks about all the off of us acquisition channels. Our team is really focused on once they land on our asset, how do we get them to complete whatever action that they need to, mm. to complete? And you've talked about the pandemic. How do you think, you know, the pandemic and now as we think about maybe return to Roma, there's so much uncertainty. How do you think that's affecting banking and financial services in general? And maybe Chase, if you can share that. Chase and most financial institutions had to move very quickly on many fronts in response to the pandemic. Most companies had to mobilize entire workforces from home. You know, thanks to the preparedness of our leadership team, we were able to do that successfully for more than a year and earning record profits during this time. You know, we were all moving at a very fast pace prior to the pandemic, but the crisis really turned up the dial. You know, we had needs to update their customers and clients in real time. Information was changing minute by minute. We had to ensure that we prioritized the most critical communications and deployed them with urgency. And our team in particular, leading the major communication channels available during the pandemic, were working around the clock for months, ensuring that time-sensitive communication made it to the customer in our digital channels daily. You know, and it wasn't just about deploying these new messages and new information, but we had many offers and products and campaigns and market that were no longer relevant. An example is travel rewards and benefits. And no one was traveling. So if left running, you know, it would make us look very insensitive. So the team spent a lot of time in quick order taking down hundreds of campaigns from our channels. In addition, our digital teams were producing months and years worth of work and days, you know, building the PPP loan process for our small businesses, which completed four years worth of loans in just 23 days. They worked to close digital servicing gaps and build out new mobile features, you know, really just ensuring that our customers could continue to operate their finances as seamlessly as possible. We also leveraged AI that predicts language preferences to improve engagement and response. And this was really imperative as customer sentiment and emotions evolved greatly over time and it allowed us to keep our finger on the pulse. And while the pandemic was anything but normal for anyone, you know, many companies proved they could run their businesses from anywhere. And it's just an impressive testament to employees across the U.S. who put their customers first while working from home, homeschooling kids under enormous pressure. And I'd like to think that, you know, Chase was a a critical leader in in leading through this crisis. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of brands and it's very few brands that were able to say we were normal during the pandemic. So I think that's incredibly impressive. I don't think if you were a customer, your services weren't interrupted and you were able to meet your, your needs as from an employee perspective, we certainly never worked harder owning the channels or, you know, leading the channels that are our own media and email, which were really the only way we could communicate with our customers during the pandemic. I know our teams were working around the clock and running scrums with our you know, chief marketing officers and chief communication officers to make sure that we get the right message out with the right priority status. And so I don't think it felt normal on the inside, but externally, I hope we look like that we uh, sailed through it with grace. That's awesome. I want to transition to your career. I think some of the most interesting things I learned in this podcast is someone's journey to their current position. You obviously are a successful marketer who uses data a lot. How did you get to where you are today? How did did you like know you were going to go into marketing? How did all of that? How did the journey happen? No, I I remember growing up and I loved math and I loved biology, like science, biology, but not so much like the physics piece. And I remember my dad, who was a CFO, would say, you're a woman and you like math. You should do something with that. <laughs> like, like, do something with that. 
And I was like, that's so boring. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit behind a desk and do math all day and how things have come full circle. I was convinced I was going to be a physical therapist. I went to a school specifically because they had a five-year program for that. And once I got there and I was in the classes, I realized, I don't think this is for me. And I ended up taking a wide variety of courses and I ended up in marketing and I have like a, a minor in graphic design. And I was coming out right after September 11th. And it was a very kind of trying time in terms of there weren't a lot of jobs and hiring. And I stuff. remember. And yes, it was difficult. And I was friendly with our president of the university that I attended. And he called me one day and said, do you have a resume? I said, of course I do. And he said, well, I sit on this board and their head of marketing is going on maternity leave and they need someone. And I gave him your name and you should go interview. So I went and interviewed with this total visionary. Her name is Mary Lou Strickland. And it was this really large nonprofit healthcare company. And it felt like a for-profit. There were five business subsidiaries, but it was a 12-month contract. I ended up staying there for five years. And what I loved about it is I came in to run marketing and do events and all the stuff that you do when you graduate marketing. But she had this like insatiable vision for just changing the way that we thought about healthcare. And she would lobby the government in DC for funds to do, you know, remote healthcare for rural patients. And she was always calling me in her office, Erin, come help me with this. Come help me with this. And I loved it. I got so much exposure to different things. And just that she was like the first kind of real powerhouse female of a long line now that I got to see. And so once that was over, I was thinking, okay, before I'm 30, I want to see nonprofit agency and corporate so I can really start to refine what I want to do and then and synthesize. I did, an, I did some work at an agency. I worked for Orient Express Hotels, which is a luxury uh, boutique hotel chain. And, and all of these jobs provided a different book of work, running really large scale brand photo shoots to events. And what I realized is I could start to curate my book of work of what I liked and what I didn't like. And what I started to realize is, wow, I really like watching the impact of our work. So being able to make changes and see the impact in the customer response. And I also really liked what I call white paper jobs, but it's when you walk (laughs) in and someone gives you a white piece of paper and says, that's your job. And not this, it's already been done. Someone's here, come in, turn the crank, check the boxes. And so I feel like I really look for the white paper jobs. I like the run for the fire. This is really complex. This is really hard. We can't figure it out. That's perfect. I'll take that. And so just thinking about how, where there's an absence of leadership or there's an absence of ownership, how do you lean in um, and start to solve those problems? And those are the kinds of things So over the year, just curating that book of work. And I feel like I'm at a place where I'm thinking about my work at night. I'm thinking about it on the weekend, which tells me I'm in the right spot. Yeah. That's awesome. How did you end up at Chase? What made you, you know, decide and how long have you been at Chase? Yeah. So I did a stint actually, this is like a blip on the resume, but I did this stint at a smaller company and within nine months I was really bored. Like I had not only done their marketing, but I had fixed their sales pipeline and I was, you know, into a lot of other stuff and it just didn't have enough meat. And when I think about Chase is I've been here seven and a half years, but I've had wildly different jobs at the same firm, a variety of things. The scale of Chase allows you to do that. Every line of business has a different feel and maybe a slightly different culture, different business outcomes, different customers. And so it really gives you a really great variety um, and you can try a lot of different things. 
Very, very cool. So one question I always like to ask, if you think about your career at Chase or even before, what's one campaign or, or feature that you helped lead that you think drove a lot of growth and you're really proud of? Yeah, that's a great question because we work on so many things. When I think about a project that I'm really proud of, it's launching the digital account opening for the consumer bank at Chase. So believe it or not, five years ago, there wasn't a way to open accounts digitally at wow. scale for the consumer bank. Totally, total wow. I was just new to this marketing team and I was working on something else. And I said, hey, I'm going to be bored of this in about three months. And they said, great, because we've got this big thing over here. Are you interested? And, and I was thinking digital acquisition, absolutely. So one of the reasons that made it successful was that I was very empowered by my leadership to be the customer. And so when thinking about launching the digital account opening experience, it wasn't just about the product, the account opening product. It was about thinking about the shopping. So how customers are getting into the product. And then also all the way through activation. And then when you lay out that customer journey, especially at a firm this size, there's a lot of people and organizations that you need to get that done. And so if I signed up for an online account, once I opened, you got an email from the digital platform. If you start to chain link all those communications and touch points, what do they look like? They looked very disjointed. And so how do we think about the full customer experience? How do we make it easy for our customers to get through? What is our experimentation agenda? And so how do we work through that? And when you're focused on being the customer, I always say, if you build for the customer, the revenue will come. Don't build for the revenue. Don't build for that business objective. Yes, that's like your ultimate objective. But if you be the customer and you look at the journey through a customer lens and you build it for them, the payoff is great. And that's the reward. And we hit our five-year business case target in nine months. I really attest that to the teams that were committed to being the customer. Very cool. How about one, something that you tried, you thought it was going to work, but it failed? Yeah. Another, I have a lot of say. <laughs> another favorite saying of mine is ideas are just assumptions until they're proven. And we all bring to the table a lot of ideas, right? We've got historical knowledge. We have personal preferences. We're customers. We're digital users. And so we all are like, this is going to kill it. This is going to work great. And then you actually test it and you say, oh, wow, this is what a learning. And we do end up learning more from the failures than we do for the things that we assume are going to go. And if I stay with the same product that I just described for digital account opening, uh, we had a checking flow. And at the time when we launched, you could open a checking account very seamlessly through the product page into the account opening. But what we thought was, wow, what if customers want to add on a savings? Like I want a checking and a savings. So let's add a, an interstitial in between that says, do you want to add a savings? We thought we're saving the customer time. If they don't want it, they just hit no. And what we realized was the funnel drop off cost us more than the people who did come through as a multi-product customer, which are more profitable for us. And so what we had anticipated was great for the customer was actually not so great for the customer. And so we reverted. And, and another example is like this whole notion of like less is more. Sometimes it is. But we've even seen that in email. Like subject lines that are longer have performed better than, than short. So again, it just comes back to that idea of experimentation and agenda and your agenda and to learn what the customer really responds to. But yeah, so testing don't assume and let the customer drive. So, you know, with testing, obviously you have to measure. Tell me a little bit about how you think about measurement of campaigns. What are the important KPIs that you look at every day? And if you have any advice on how others should think about measurement, measuring their own campaigns. 
Yeah, especially for performance marketing, what's in our DNA is measurement. I often say to the team, and I hear them repeat is if we can't measure it, we shouldn't do it. And that also allows us to make sure we're prioritizing and vetting ideas that are really impactful. As it relates to customer acquisition, so thinking about like the shopping and the intent and the origination, we're really looking at like value per engagement. So if I use an example of our owned media with a billion views every month, things that we look at every time a set of eyeballs see our content, what is that worth to us? And by really focusing on the channel, optimizing, taking out the things that don't perform, um, giving the good stuff room to breathe, we've been able to increase our click-through rate 50% in the last two years. The the value per impression every time somebody sees one our content is up over five and a half times. So that tells us we're hitting the mark, we're more relevant, and we're achieving more business outcomes for our lines of business. And so all the usual suspects, so revenue, engagement, click-through rates, adoption, activation, conversions, those are kind of things that, that we think through. And there's also some other, are we making it easier, removing steps in the process? But you, those, all those things realize themselves then in, in improved conversion funnels. So it all ties back. I like it. And when you think about, you know, measuring and the different channels and different platforms, I think obviously branch, we live in mobile. So I'm curious how you think about the importance of mobile in general for banking and also how the pandemic has shifted that importance as well. Yeah, we did see a big tick up in mobile adoption and that has not fallen off. We've gained new users and customers who downloaded the app and become digitally active tried and adopted new features like digital check caching and person-to-person payments and digital bill pay, you know, mobile will continue to grow as, you know, we've got this increased demand for self-service and personalization on products and services rise. That expectation is growing. And, you know, looking back even over the last 10 years, we've migrated from cash to credit cards and now mobile and digital transactions. You know, I wouldn't have imagined 10 years ago that I could pay my friends, my bills, deposit checks, and make withdrawals and deposits at the ATM all using my mobile banking app. But I do it every day. You know, cash has become a less valuable currency, except when I hit the baseball fields on the weekends for my son's games and they still want cash. You know, even my mom picked up bill pay during the pandemic and loves it. You know, she says it changed her life and she loves that it's instant and she can see the real-time payment was made and she doesn't need to get stamps or write a check. So, you know, sometimes it, it takes a something like the pandemic to shift some, you know, behaviors. But the travel industry is another great example. You know, we've shifted from paper to digital printed boarding passes to mobile boarding passes. And travel apps, you know, present rewards and upgrades and check-in and digital keys right on the spot when you're traveling. And so I think the mobile trend isn't isolated to some industries, but it's really changing all industries. You know, with that comes this expectation that we have, you know, access to transaction and behavioral data and that we'll use that to create better and more relevant experiences for our customer. It's part of the job that my team is responsible for is really driving that improved, relevant digital experiences for acquisition. Thinking about those blue sky, big picture, new features, what doesn't exist today in the market, and also that iterative optimization of our incredible assets. And so just focusing on improving every aspect of that journey with that disciplined data-driven rigor, just to really get it right for our customers. Do you foresee, what are some big challenges you foresee in the financial industry over the next few years? Any big shifts beyond the trends that you mentioned? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of themes that kind of come to mind when I'm looking ahead at what's new or trending in customer acquisition and mobile. Sounds obvious, but it's all about the data. You know, data is going to help us feel more effortless, personalized, and consistent shopping and acquisition journeys. You know, we aim to remove as much friction as we can in the funnel, and we use data to bear that burden for the customer. We can pre-fill applications, can start a customer they drop off in the funnel in one channel and pick up in another. You know, we provide one-click account opening for existing customers. We can anticipate their propensity to open a product or engage in a service. Customers are also demanding personalization, and it's more than just using my name or my credit card's reward points balance in a communication. It's about tying their behavior and insights to eligible offers and connecting journeys with tailored recommendations, presenting proactive and intuitive content. So if the data shows that I log in to pay my credit card bill on the 20th of every month, when I open my app on the 20th, present me with the screen that asks if I want to pay my credit card bill, you know, pre-fill the amount that I usually pay. So I can do this in one click versus making me go, you know, three, four, five clicks through to complete this action. Um, I can even see the desire for, I have a Netflix charge and it's reoccurring, but the data shows I haven't logged into Netflix in a couple months and asking if I want to cancel that subscription. Those types of value added, make my life easier, personalization efforts, I think will just become table stakes. You know, in, in using AI to compute massive amounts of data in order to drive this personalization at scale, you know, is really going to be critical. Humans won't be able to keep up. And I think, you know, another trend that we're just at the beginning of is this creation of ancillary products, not necessarily tied to a core product offering. An example would be our Chase Credit Journey product, you know, allows customers and non-customers to track their credit score, get advice on how to improve it, receive alerts if their score moves up or down. While this isn't a financial product per se, we see the value of this type of service to our customers. And so we're making it available without an existing relationship. And so I think we'll see more and more of this as we as we serve the whole customer need and not just specific product relationships. That's awesome. Beyond being a marketer, you're also a leader. I'm curious how you think about leadership, how you think of yourself as a manager and a leader. What are some of your philosophies? When I think about leadership, I, I usually go to all the great leaders that I have and think, what did I love about them? How did they make me feel? How did they make those around us feel? And then emulate those. And likewise, we've all had managers that have not been as great. And, and you take notes on that as well. There's a couple of things for me. One is about being like humble and having no ego. So asking a lot of feedback, giving credit to those who did the work and making sure that they have a voice and that they feel like their voice is equal in a room with yours, not being afraid to rethink. So what was fit for purpose a year ago might've been perfect a year ago, but today we have new information. Things may have changed. And how do we not have the ego to say, I built that and it's still good. And we should just keep going in that path versus saying, no, actually we should pivot. Like, I know we did that then, but this is the new information. So not having an ego or a personal agenda, but just continuing to navigate through change. The other one is all of us in this space, if you're a product owner or marketer, it's like you have to be curious. You ask a lot of questions. You encourage others to be the stranger in the room. You don't want a bunch of people who just nod their head and agree with you. So how do you create the culture to get good to great? That's not by having everyone agree with your idea. I always say, my team will come and ask me, what should I do? I'm like, what should we do? You live it every day. What's your recommendation? Maybe like you tell me, but encouraging people to have 
the empowerment and that have opinions, have informed positions, be a, be a student of your business, all those things create you know the right kind of culture for transformation. And that's about like how you operate and what are all the micro events. I often say, don't be, a, don't talk about it, be about it. Mm. And it's all those little events about investing in your team's career journeys and sponsoring development. And how are you with your partners? I, I like to say, I start with yes, because we can really do anything. It's how and when, but we can do it. So how do we get there? And, and how do we partner? How do we treat people like adults? We're all coming to work because we want to be here. and We want to do great things. So we shouldn't micromanage each other and, and tell each other how to do our work. And, you know, just standing up for what's right and advocating for those who may need more of a voice um, at the top is really important for me. So I'm very involved with our diversity, inclusion, and equity teams. I mentor a lot of folks. We have talent programs for our diverse employees. I give a lot of panel discussions and one-on-one mentorship. So it's really important to me that I don't just talk the talk, but I actually walk it and create the right culture. I love that. Any advice you have for others that are, you know, younger in their careers who want to build a career in marketing or become leaders? I've seen this over time is some people really want you to do the work for them versus owning their career journey. And so I always say it's 70% you and it's 30% me. And so you have to dig in, do the work, but you also do need to have the right sponsorship and mentorship and guidance. And so if you're not getting that, you should find the right team that will help you do that. I don't know if I really had confidence until probably like my mid thirties, I realized I can do more than I ever thought I could. And you know, I, I had read a stat that 85% or women read job descriptions and they have to yeah. check the box on 85% yeah. to apply and men 20%. Yeah. I have read that too. It's, and yes. I've also seen it in when I review applications. It's really interesting. Yeah, the more more qualified versus less yeah. qualified. And you can just do more. So having that confidence, understanding your value, understanding your worth, being able to articulate that. And then authenticity matters. Like bringing your real self to work. I always say I'm the same for the janitor as I am for the CEO. Like this is Aaron. This is who you get. I'm authentic. I'm passionate. I'm engaged and I'm supportive, but I'm authentic in my interactions with folks across uh, the firm and, and in my network. And maybe the last piece of advice would be like, don't be defensive with feedback. And the more you ask and the more you get, the easier it is to take. And it's every day, yes, I wake up. I'm going to do my best today. But my best may not always be the best to everyone. And so like just getting that constant feedback. And I used to be defensive and, and think, I tried so hard. Didn't they know how hard I tried? And it's not about trying hard. I empathize with that. I have definitely been there as well. Yes. Yeah, it just makes you such a better person. It's really good advice. So Erin, we've done so much in your career growth. We've learned a lot about you today. But what's something that we would learn that you think shaped your career that we should know about you that we wouldn't be able to learn from your resume or doing a Google search on you? I don't know if it's shaped my career, but something that you might not know is that I have a minor in graphic design and I have this right brain, left brain competition around, and which is why marketing works so well. Because you have to be innovative and creative and really thinking outside the box and have the white paper space to create. But then you also have to be like really analytical. But I used to second shoot weddings, so photography. I also used to love graphic design and in my 20s did a lot of my friends' wedding invites, shower invites, 
baby showers. I used to paint all the things that I feel like have been gobbled up by work and now kid routines, but definitely have a creative side that I just, hobbies that I love. I love that. That's really awesome. So let's move to our lightning round, which is three kind of random questions that I ask in every podcast that will get our listeners to, <laughs> to get to know you better. So if you had to delete all the apps on your phone and you could keep one, what would it be? That would be my weather app. I'm in the weather app a lot. Wow. This yeah. is the first time we have heard this answer. <laughs> <laughs> my son plays travel baseball and I really like to be outside. And if I wasn't doing this job, I might be a meteorologist. So I feel like I would pick my weather app. I love it. And then if you could have an app that allowed you to talk to one animal or one type of animal, what would you pick? It's interesting question. I recently read there is a Seychelles tortoise and his name is Jonathan. And he is the oldest known living land animal. He just, it was like in the Guinness World Record book at 187 years old. Wow. And he might be able to give us some truths and some good history. So maybe Jonathan, the Seychelles tortoise. Yeah. I think that's like up there in, in how people have answered this question. It's one of the most interesting answers. I love it. <laughs> and then, okay, what's one unlikely app on your phone that we would be surprised? Okay. I just downloaded this week. It's called Magic the Gathering. It's like oh, some Dungeon yeah. and Dragons app that my son wanted. Have you heard about it? I know about it. Our uh, CTO is obsessed with it. And he actually did a thing where he taught us how to play Magic the Gathering. It was so complicated. I will admit that I kind of got lost. It's so complicated. My son sits me down to play it and he says, isn't that easy? No, it's actually harder than all the the work that I have to do during the day. But yes, that's probably the the most non-Aaron app on my phone. I love it. That's awesome. Aaron, this was awesome. I feel I learned. I took some mental notes of things to do in our culture and I, I feel like I definitely get to know you better and I hope our listeners have as well. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for all the advice. It was really great having you on the show. Thanks so much. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing. Keep growing.